Paul to the Colossian believers, how he goes about doing that. I have this picture up uh, behind me just to get us thinking about um, kind of the same idea as we look at where the Colossian church was uh, in the culture that they were in and think about the culture that we as a church live and operate in. And uh, I think the first realization as we look at this is how many are glad that there's no cheetahs in Michigan? I, I know that I wouldn't outrun them. I think maybe Pastor Nathan could, but I, I would be uh, in a worse place than this gazelle here. But as I was thinking about this picture and, and the, the points that Paul makes to the Colossian believers, there's something very clear in this picture. The gazelle is not distracted about what he needs to do, or she. The gazelle knows exactly what the priority is. In spite of the pressure around the gazelle, it knows it's not a time to stop and look for my friends or eat or drink, or take a rest, there's one thing I need to do. And what Paul meets the Colossians with in Colossians chapter 3 uh, this morning is, is how they as a church can have a grounded, focused faith following Christ in spite of really some deadly pressures on the outside that have even gotten on the inside of their church. I think about as we as a church serve in this community and in our, in our day and age, the pressures of what we will or won't talk about or teach or affirm where we go and not go, and the things that you, especially in a secular workplace that you face head on, what kinds of things will you embrace and tolerate? I, I think this is where we are as a church too. So before we get into the text, I'd like to pray, but I want you to be thinking about how Paul gives us gospel hope, gospel direction, and instruction on what we can do as we're faced by pressure. Father, I just ask that you speak through your word and pull me to the background This is your word, your people. Don't want to get in the way of it. And I just ask that you would do the convicting, you would do the teaching, and that as a result, we would all continue to change things in our lives that Paul calls the Colossian believers to change. That we'd be encouraged and reminded to rely on you for the strength and ability to do so. It's in Jesus' name I ask this. Amen. So I know it's weird for us to not be working through a book as a series, because we just got out of a series in Titus a couple weeks ago, and we're headed into Matthew chapter 5 next week to begin a Sermon on the Mount series, which I'm looking forward to. But where we're jumping in in Colossians chapter 3, we just kind of paint the picture of where the church is at. So Paul's never met these believers face-to-face. He's met their their house church pastor, Epaphras, who this letter goes back to them with, while he was serving in Ephesus. So if you remember, Paul was in the city of Ephesus for quite some time, which is in Turkey, present-day Turkey. And he met Epaphras. Epaphras came to Christ, goes back home, starts this church. And after some time passes, Epaphras is meeting with Paul in Rome when Paul's in prison and says, here's the things that are going really well. People are coming to Christ. And here's the things that are not going really well. Here's what we're confronted with. So in chapter 1, Paul says, well, the beginning of working through these pressures, and we'll get to the pressures here in a moment. The beginning, though, is knowing really, really clearly who Christ is. And there's a Christ hymn in chapter 1 of Colossians where he talks about how Christ is preeminent, powerful over everything. To be able to operate within this pressure in what we would call a real life, both individually and as a church, you have to have a strong, clear picture of who Christ is and what he accomplished. Paul says things like, he's preeminent over all creation. He's reconciling all things to himself. He brings us peace with each other and with God through the power of his blood on the cross. And in chapter 2, he talks about the pressures that the Colossians are facing. 
See, the Colossian church is on kind of the western end of what's modern-day Turkey. So they're in this intersection of what used to be the Greek empire. So there's Greek influence, all the gods that the Greeks would follow and their customs. And now there's a Roman influence because it's a Roman province. So there's other gods that they're pushed to follow in their community. You know, this is what we do in our town. We follow these gods. There's spiritual influences because it's, there's always a spiritual battle. But there are some real pressures that these Colossian believers are facing. On the other side, though, there's this other pressure because much like Paul encounters Jews everywhere he goes on his missionary journey, there's Jewish settlers in these Roman provinces. So the people that are coming to Christ in the Colossian church are faced with these gods that, that people are saying, it's okay, you can, you can worship Zeus and Jesus. He's just another one of the pantheon. You can kind of have them both cohabitate in your heart and worship them both. And on the other side, you have these Jewish influencers who are saying, you're a really good Christian. You're a really good follower of God if you follow these laws. You've got to follow this diet. You've got to follow these rules. This is how you know you're really doing it well. And Paul is stripping all of that off and saying, hey, listen, I, I understand because Paul used to be part of that pressure, right? I understand that you're facing these pressures, but first, don't forget who Christ is. He's greater and stronger than all of this and owns all of creation. Second, He's given you a new life, and that new life is what you operate in. That's the new focus, like that gazelle. He's got only one thing he's got to do. This new life in Christ in chapter 2 is where we begin to make these changes in our life. But it's not lost on me that, that you guys face real pressure, especially those of you who work in the secular workplace. I hope this passage encourages you and shows you first where real faith is grounded and what we can do, there's decisive actions here that Paul asks for or, or commands the Colossian believers, what they can do to have that real faith exercised in their life. So we're going to be getting re uh, reading at the beginning of uh, chapter 3 if you want to read along with me. If then you have been raised with Christ, at the end of chapter 2 he says you died to this old life and you're raised with Christ. And the, the rest of this chapter, chapter 3, is this big if-then statement. If this is true of you, then you will do these things. So think about it that way. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. It'd be very easy for that gazelle to start looking at the cheetah, start looking at the cheetahs on each side, start focusing on the pressure. And Paul's saying, what you need to do, church, is not focus on the pressure, but focus on how things happen in heaven. Remember that God is preeminent. It's the same way Christ taught his disciples to pray, right? Your will be done here on earth, as it's done in heaven. Paul's reminding us, if, if you believe what I said in chapter 1, and I encourage you for your homework this week, read what he says about Christ in chapter 1. It's beautiful. It's encouraging. It's life-giving to your soul. So focus on those things. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. There's going to be this distinction. Old life, new life, dead, alive, earth, above. Those are common to Paul and how he teaches. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. If pressure's really gotten to you, maybe this is where today begins to be encouraging, where you realize you're protected. If you've come to Christ, you're protected by him. You're not held out here still on your own. Paul says, Colossian believers, you're not just at the will of these forces beside you, just relentlessly getting attacked. You are protected by Christ. But there's something that we as believers can do to partner with him, making changes in our lives. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then when you also will appear with him in glory. He's talking about the return of Christ, saying that you won't be like this forever. At some point, you'll either die and go to be with him, or he's going to return and take those who follow him with him to glory. But this little 
highlighted statement here, who is your life? This week when I was studying this, that was so convicting. There's a couple of these phrases in this passage that I'll, I'll point to and say they were left hooks. They were like, you know, God speaking to me saying, Brendan, am I your life? Is this everything? Is this everything to you? Later on in this, in this chapter, he'll challenge the Colossians to do everything, whether they speak or act, under the name of the Lord. It's also really convicting. But if you believe chapter 1 is true, that Christ is indeed preeminent over all things, your life will begin to look like what Paul describes here. First, though, we have to have a focused faith. Remember what our focus has got to be on. It's easy to focus on this movement or this pressure or this party or this president. It's easy to get distracted by these things, and, and some bad things come out of that. Paul will talk about here in a minute. But a reminder to have a focused faith. And that will produce something. We'll get to that here in a moment. So in verse 5, he com continues with the first instruction of this, of this uh, passage where there's an action expected. And it's pretty decisive. It's pretty brutal. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Before we read this passage and talk about some of these earthly behaviors, I just want to make sure there's no misconceptions. First of all, this whole list, this is a challenge. Just because we get up here and, and worship and lead worship and teach doesn't mean that we're absolved of being tempted by any of these things on this list, having any of these things in our past, struggling in any of these areas. These are a reality of earthly life. But Paul says, see them exactly as that. They're earthly. And you're not earthly anymore. You're heavenly. You are God's and you're hidden in him. So as we read this list, I don't want you to have the misconception that we've got this all nailed down and figured out. But what I do know, after three years of ministry, what, what I have learned, not perfection, but what I have learned is my desperate need for Christ, the reality of the flesh. As I study God's word over and over, he's like, Brendan, you see what you'd be like without me? You see what life would be out like if you didn't believe this, if you didn't follow this, if you didn't stop for a second and think, what would a Christ follower do in this situation? Whether it be a temptation or a challenge, what would a Christ follower respond like? I do know that better as a result of being one of your leaders and working in this church family, it's taught me a lot about what I would be like without Christ. Paul is going to include that in this passage. So as we read this list, just know, lovingly Paul is saying, these things cost you. They will all cost you. If I could go back and talk to 15-year-old Brendan, I'd say, don't, don't think about what this is going to get you right now. Think about what this is going to cost you. The reality is 15-year-old Brendan heard that. Many of you were told that. But I would remind you, as Paul is going to remind you, these things all will cost you and they can't live in your heart alongside Christ. Put them to death. It's clear. So let's go through this list. Sexual immorality, really broad umbrella of all things sexual existing outside a marital relationship. Impurity, passion, evil desire. See how Paul starts with the things that cause so much shame in our lives? That cause shame that, that makes it so that I can't talk to you and you can't talk to me because... I know what I'm really like, and you know what you're really like. One of his end goals in this passage is that we'd be a unified church, that the Colossian church would be a unified church. So when you're tempted with these things, please remember, if, if, if God brings these words to your mind, this will cost me greatly. Because that cost, that shame, although it was born on the cross by Christ, I believe that. My, my shame, my guilt was born by Christ on the cross. It influences even our ability to fellowship with each other. Lastly, in this list, he says, and covetousness. I think in the social media age, we see this loud and clear. I could tell you this is a, a big struggle for me. 
with social media. You're scrolling and seeing where the so-and-sos are or what they just got or where they live or who they met or what they got to do on their vacation. And I start to think, and this is why Paul calls this idolatry. I start to think, you know, that, that trip or that thing, that would really satisfy me. That is where I would be happy. I'd be secure. If I could just, if I could just attain that or visit that place or visit this place that I miss, all of these things about satisfaction being grounded in what we have or get to do. Paul warns you, this will become an idol. Inside your heart where Christ is living, you'll all of a sudden start to say, yeah, but you know, because of what Christ has done, I do follow him, but I also keep this space in my heart reserved for the things that I can do that, that satisfy me, the things that I can achieve. And covetousness is just this awful inroad into that. So Paul says, beware of this and put it to death. Stop desiring these things, thinking that they're going to satisfy you, because they won't. After all, if they did, wouldn't you be satisfied now? Because you've gotten something, I'm sure, by now in your life that you desired. So you will, you will constantly be following after that, and that will become idolatry. You find your pleasure and satisfaction in that. So God, er, Paul gives a sobering warning here. That's something we don't like to talk about. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. What I believe he means here is understand that, as I told you, be warned, these cost you deeply. The wrath of God is coming on these things, on humankind, because these things are hurting his kids. So when you, when you make a decision that follows a sinful temptation and gives into that temptation and, and make one of these costly mistakes, which all of us have done, God's anger is kindled against, kindled against that sin because it's going to hurt you. He remembers what that was like in the garden when Adam and Eve started this whole process by distancing themselves from him to begin with. In these two you once walked when you were living in them. I told you there's a couple left hooks coming in this passage. This is another one of those. When we start to list sins, don't we kind of find the spots where we miss the list? Well, I'm not like that. I haven't done any of those. Okay, that's good. Well, there's a second list coming. So just prepare yourself. You're probably on that list uh, as, as well as I am uh, if you escaped somehow the first. But Paul sobers the Colossian believers by, hey, you, you came out of these pressures, whether they were these um, many gods, these small g gods that you were following, you once walked in these ways. And this is incredibly humbling to me. And I think could transform the attitude of our church and churches uh, about the world around us. I really like to read or study the Titanic and the Titanic sinking. I was fascinated with it as a, a young kid. And it's really interesting to me just because it's so long ago now, I think it's 110 years ago, just the way that that would be different if that happened today. But as you read the survivors' stories, one of the things they talk about 100%, whether they were put in a lifeboat as a rich person, if they snuck into a lifeboat, or if they were one of the 70 people plucked out of the ocean on a cold April night, and put in a lifeboat, one of the things they all talk about is the screaming out in the dark. And I think about that image, about sitting in the lifeboat, and for two hours you hear people that you were just on this boat with just a little while ago, floating in the ocean, screaming, drowning, freezing to death. And they all remark how they'll never forget the sound of that screaming, and how they'll never forget when it was all gone. And they floated out there amongst just this wreckage and these bodies until they were rescued. And it just makes me think about how when we see groups in our culture and in our community that do things that we find disgusting because they're the sin that we are to put down, that maybe we once walked in, 
if we looked at that culture and this community as, as those people floating out in the ocean screaming in the dark and realized, but for the grace of God, plucking me out of that same cold, icy water and putting me in a lifeboat, I'd be like that. I was once like that. And that just gives me, gives me what Paul's going to talk about here in a moment, the ability to have a compassionate heart even against people who are against the church because I realized I was like that. I was as hopeless as a person bobbing in the North Atlantic in the middle of the night. But now you must put them all away. Again, it's decisive. I used to pray, God, kill the flesh in my heart. Kill the flesh in my heart. And then I realized passages like this, put it on me. I have to make this decision. Now it's not only on me. He partners with me. But they're repeated to be doing this now. This is a decision you must make, believer. So now do this. We can't wait. Anger. Now this is one where I have to stop and say, sometimes I live under the excuse that this is righteous anger. What I'm angry about is okay because it's righteous anger. I don't know, nobody here probably does that, but I can, I can, I uh, Consult myself and I say, it's okay because I'm angry about the right things. And you know what? There is such thing as righteous anger. Christ demonstrates that in the temple. That's usually where people go when we talk about anger. Just remember, if you're not familiar with the context of what he's doing when he's cleansing the temple, is he's making a place for you and I to pray. He is so mad that the Gentile court is taken up by livestock and businesses and crooked people and people like me who aren't a Jew who don't have a direct line with God, come in and pray, and we have to deal with all that. They're being excluded from access to God from all of that. That's what makes Jesus angry. So righteous anger, if that's that's where you stay and and you've maybe used that line, just remember it begets or begats righteous action. It's not just what you choose to do. It's the things that make us angry in a righteous way. We will act in a right-with-God way in response to those. Also, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. So now it's not just the actions, but it's the things we say that are starting to distance ourselves from each other and cause friction inside the church and outside the church. And these things come as animosity grows because of the pressure these Colossian believers are faced by, well, you follow these laws. If you do this, you'll be a good follower of God. Or you can follow all these small G gods, and there's this really watered-down gospel where you can still do the things you want to do as you follow Christ. They're beginning to present themselves in this way through anger, wrath, slander. So what Paul is really hammering home, as he does in other passages in Ephesians and elsewhere, that these are decisions we have to make. A focused faith where we're, we are focused on what Christ has done in chapter 1, who Christ is, leads to the ability to decide to act. You have to put these things down. I just want to go back for a second and say, if you know what these things would cost you, if you know what you would face later on in life where you have to unpack these decisions and heal and grow from them, which God does provide. We sang about that just a moment ago. But if you knew what they would cost you, you would more than likely be willing to pull the trigger. If you knew what was said about Christ in chapter 1 was truly true in your heart and what these things would cost you, you would join us in putting these to death. So Paul completes the, 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 what we need to stop and put down with this. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. After all, if we have a clear idea of who Christ is, we don't 
we don't have to make believe that we're better than, we're not, than we are by lying and skillfully navigating, right? We can be honest that we were once like this, and now we're not because of the work that Christ has done in our hearts. This gives the church the ability to be honest with one another. You've put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. This is fascinating. Paul says in chapter 1, Christ is the exact image of God. He's the exact presentation of God to man. And now he says you're going to be the image, the exact image of Christ to others. And Christ is so powerful that he's going to work on how you think, and it's going to be displayed to other people. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian and Scythian. Chances are you haven't met a Scythian. Maybe you have. So I looked this up because I've read this passage before and just kind of blown by it. And what Paul is doing in this passage became really profound to me. What he's saying is Christ's ability to unite us in a focused faith is so strong that the barbarians, who they call barbarians, the Scythians, will be a part of your church. He starts with Greek and Jew where it's like, well, at least we're both cultured people. We're not like those barbarians. You're a Greek, so you're kind of a heathen, but at least you're cultured. And I'm a Jew, and I got a lot of rules. And he, Christ breaks down those barriers, Paul says. And then he goes to barbarian and Scythian. So Scythians would be on the outer remote reaches of the Roman Empire. If you're interested in geography, this is modern-day Ukraine, Russia, and Siberia. They were kind of like, you imagine the Mongol tribes that are on horseback and kind of warfare parties. This was west of that area, but kind of the same lifestyle. So terrifying to good civilized Romans. And kind of an interesting picture if we, if we visualize them coming in to our church. That would be as if you had someone who was a former Hell's Angel maybe join your church. Or someone who was a, maybe a former member of ISIS join your church. Understand, folks, this is extreme to us because it's not the part of the world we live in. But there are brothers and sisters in Christ, much like ourselves, who are welcoming people just like that into their churches in other parts of the world. And that's amazing. That is the testimony of what Christ can do. And Paul is saying, all of these divisions go away when you consider what Christ has done. When you consider who you once were. This last pair is particularly important to the Colossians. You see, there's not just one letter that goes to Colossae. There's two. You're probably familiar with the other letter. It's called Philemon. It's later on in the book here, later on in God's word here. You'll see a letter where Paul writes a man named Philemon about his escaped slave named Onesimus. And he says, Philemon, good news. Something amazing happened. Onesimus came to me and he came to Christ and now he's your brother so I'm sending him back to you so he can help in your church and help in your community for Christ and I'm telling you this because when you welcome him back welcome him like a brother so even the distinction between slave and free is really profound because if this wasn't the house church that Philemon worshipped in they probably knew each other there's probably another local house church in Colossae and the idea that even for him this gospel message about who Christ is and what he did is so profound, it's going to transform this guy and his relationship that was, that was just destroyed or just, just altered. But Christ is in all, Christ is all and in all. Paul is going to continue to bring it back to Christ. This is the unifying factor for all of these divisions. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Think of this as just the image of like when your kids are rushing, getting ready for school, and they try to put their coat on over their backpack. Maybe your kids aren't like mine, but they try to make that work. Paul says, you got to take this off first, 
Put this to death, then put on, clothe yourself, wrap yourself around in these things. It will change your appearance, like putting on a uniform. And these things are going to demonstrate that you're God's chosen people. If you're like me, you have to be reminded of that from time to time. He chose you for this. You are this important to him, that he picked you out of everyone. He picked you to live this life and to have this role as his. Holy, talk about that as separate or set apart for a purpose. And beloved. Let's talk about holy for a second, though, because this image always comes to mind when I read about holy. Because it's lost sometime in the great holiness of God that's hard to conceive, how he is so holy and set apart. But as far as the purpose that he has for you and I, let's talk about holiness for a second. So I keep, well, up until this year, I keep kept bees. And um, one of the processes in keeping bees, or one of the things you learn about keeping bees is they're incredibly, incredibly susceptible to poison, it's really easy to kill bees in Michigan, unfortunately. So when you have tools for bees, you only use them for working with the bees. Like the spray bottle, I fill this with sugar water and I use it for the hive. Now I have written on here over and over, bees, bees, bee use only, bee use only. Like maybe I'll get the point. This is set apart for that purpose. You see, for the bees, it's life and death. If I put poison in this bottle, and I spray it on the hive, they will die. It's life and death that I maintain this being set apart. I can't use this for two purposes. Like the Colossian believers who say, well, maybe I can follow after some self-satisfaction, follow Zeus and Jesus. Maybe I can have these two things live in my heart. Maybe I could use this for weed killer and for the bees because I don't want to buy another spray bottle. So it's life and death for the bees. And Paul would say this holiness, this being set apart is life and death for your faith. That you are chosen for a particular purpose and only for that purpose, much like this bottle is used for those bees, I just have to remember to read the bottle. <laughs> so I hope, you, I hope you benefit from that picture because it always reminds me that I have a purpose and I was chosen for that purpose. And secondly, Paul says here, you're beloved. The second thing we need to be reminded of here is God stands like the, the, the father of the prodigal son with his arms open running towards you as you come to Christ he wraps his arms around you and says, you're my favorite. You are my favorite. And I did this for you. And I love you. Paul points this out to the Colossian believers so that they know all of this stuff I'm asking you to put down. I know I'm making it sound easy because I just write it out here. You're not alone in this. I know it's hard to do this. Hard to stop maybe habits and things you've done for a long time. Things that hold you captive, hold you prisoner. But you're not alone in this. I chose you to do this. And I'm with you to do this. If I love you, I'm not going to set you out to do it on your own. It's an incredible reminder for us too. So the things that we have to put on, we have to put on a compassionate heart. And when I think about Christ's compassionate heart, I think about when he looks at the crowd and sees they're like sheep without a shepherd, stressed and pressed, lonely and abused. Matthew 9 says he looks at them and has compassion for them. Have that same compassionate heart as you look out into that ocean of unbelief where people are drowning, where people are dying. And they might seem like they're happy and living life, but really they're hurting and alone in their soul. Have that compassionate heart, Paul says. Kindness, a true ability to show outward goodness to someone else where you have their best interests, not our own, their best interests in mind. Humility. So think about the person whose identity is firmly rooted in Christ in chapter 1. You could have this humility because you don't have to puff yourself up for what you can do, what you've achieved, because you know what's been achieved for you. 
So have an identity rooted in Christ. That will produce humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another and... If one has a complaint against another, forgiving one another. Paul is about to hit us with another left hook here, but it's important to remember these are things that are identified by living, Christ-following people. They do these things. In Matthew chapter 5, when we start on the Sermon on the Mount, you'll hear some of these things repeated, and we'll expound on what this actually looks like in your life. If if you hear something like this and you think, I I don't do that in my life, but I would like to, We're going to spend several weeks on what this kind of living in God's kingdom looks like and how God feels, how he responds to people who live in that way. So Paul says you have to forgive one another. That's a daily thing sometimes, right? You apologize once, but you forgive day after day after day. And again, the meter here, the metric here is the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Above all else, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Love is always referred to as the one trait that wraps all of these things together and makes them work. It's the motivation for why you can have compassion for the lost, why you can be humble, why you can be meek. Well, you don't know what they did. You don't know what they said. You're right. But, but do you love them? Can you show them love? Because if you, if you get yourself to a place where you can love them and find a way to show them love, It will help you not react harshly to them. And let the peace of what? Winning the arguments? Say it out loud if it's in front of you. The peace of what? Christ. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. In chapter 1 he says he gives us peace. He's bringing peace by the blood on the cross. So in arguments and in conflict in a church, can we allow Christ and the peace that he brings to be this rule, this word for rule is, is like arbiter or umpire, to be the umpire for, for what we'd like to see happen. So as you have an opposing viewpoint, I think we should really do this. Well, I think you're wrong. I think we should do this. Can this passage remind us to just slow down and think, where does Christ win? Where do we have peace? Not appeasement, but where do we have true peace? Stability rooted in what we know Christ did for us. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. It's very challenging for me as I like to win. I want to win. And in an argument, you want to win. You want to have that victory. And so I have to remember there's something bigger than this this argument. It might be an important topic, but there's always something more important. And that's displaying Christ to this other person as they display Christ back to me. To which indeed you were called in one body. The result of this is unity, guys. And be thankful. Thankfulness is mentioned three times in this passage. The security that comes from knowing the work that Christ did allows us to have a perspective of thankfulness. No matter what we encounter, we can be thankful. This is temporary. I'm going to focus on what's eternal. This is earthly things. These will be here when I'm gone. But I will be with Christ. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. So a church that focuses on God's word through discipleship, through small groups, or children's ministry, clear teaching from the word on Sundays. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. That provides the environment where the peace of Christ can rule. One of the things that became really clear to me as I studied this passage this week is Paul wants you to see a direct correlation between peace in your conflicts and under pressure and the presence of God's word in your life. You can't have one without the other. If you're you're finding yourself in conflict and unable to achieve peace, Turning to God's word as a resource. How do I handle conflict? Well, there's quite a bit. 
and a book written to a people in conflict. There's quite a bit on how to handle conflict. But it teaches me, it shows me, and hopefully it'll show you that, that the, the peace of Christ cannot rule where the word of God, where the word of Christ doesn't dwell. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns, spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. That is why we spend time worshiping. We don't just come and have a sermon and study God's word together. We come and we join together in worship, number one, to praise God, to thank him corporately for what he's done. Like Paul starts out thanking the church and thanking Christ for what he's done. And then we do that to remind ourselves of truths from God's word in a way that we'll remember them throughout our week. We do that corporately for that purpose. And whatever you do in word or deed, this is Paul's last left hook for us. I mentioned this earlier, and whatever you do, so the, the end result of this focused faith that leads to decisive action, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. I look forward to the day where at the end of my day I can say, everything I did today, everything I did today I could put Christ's name on and people would believe it. All the things I said, the things I thought, the things I did, my desires, not coveting things, acting with the best interests of others in mind, all the things I did at the end of the day, I can say, Christ did these through me. So think about a life that you could assign Christ's name to as you think about what is your faith focused on? What, what is your response to the pressure that you feel on the outside? Maybe on the inside of your own family even. And how you respond to that by having Christ-likeness that's displayed to other people, by putting on, clothing yourself in this compassionate heart, humility, and love. So just as we wrap up, I think one of the things that we could focus on as we go forward into the Sermon on the Mount is that we're going to get lots of instruction on what being a member of Christ's kingdom looks like and knowing that that happens now and we count on this happening now as it does in heaven. And that in spite of whatever, the pressure for you might not be these small g gods of self-satisfaction. It might be you're the only member of, of the church in your family. You're the only Christ follower in your workplace. Maybe that's what you face. And that is pressure. I know it. That's pressure. And, and maybe that's what you experience. Or maybe you're, maybe you're going through a particular conflict right now. And for all purposes, it doesn't look like the peace of Christ is going to rule. I encourage you to dive into God's word and read about how to handle conflict and argument and to love those who persecute you. And remember that the peace of Christ is accomplished through the work that he did on the cross. Read that Christ hymn in chapter 1. And I hope you find it to be encouraging. I hope you find it to empower you to live this Christ-like life. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. And I just pray that you allow it to soak into our hearts this week. I know many of my friends here endure different conflicts and pressures that, that I can't imagine. And maybe as they listen to this list of things to put down and to kill, they see that there's a lot of work to do in their lives. You specialize in doing a lot of work, Father, and I'm grateful for that. So send your spirit to encourage them, to convict them and direct them this week as they put to death things that are costing them, are poisoning their faith. Help us to be encouraged by the fact that you chose us so you don't let us do this on our own, you don't leave us to be, but you work within us and you partner with us. Help people to see that this week and how special they are to you, Father. Pray for your church and that we would represent you to this community. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.